The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callaghan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound. Hello and welcome along to The Business Chat, our monthly catch-up to talk about the topics in business. We're joined today by Rebecca Stevenson, the spin-off business editor for a short time remaining, <laughs> and also Maria Slade, the senior copywriter and communications person at Callaghan Innovation. Good G'day. Morning. morning. Hey, thanks so much for coming along. It's lovely to be here. It's freezing. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> uh, we've got we've got a range of exciting topics to chat through today. We've got flying planes, anatomically correct animal models, uh, and the end of the plastic bag, and a bit of what's happened on the pod over the month. And maybe to jump um, right in, uh, right into the um, to the thick of it. Um, tell me about these anatomically correct animal models. <laughs> This is absolutely my most favourite award winner from the the Field Days Innovation Awards. It's a company called Wholesome, Wholesome with an S in the middle, and it came out of the the Sprout Accelerator, the the Agritech Accelerator. And these guys were industrial designers, and they were doing some work for LIC, the Agritech company, uh, because... Basically, it's getting harder and harder to test on animals, or not so much test on animals, but to like train vets, to train people how to do artificial insemination. You have to get all sorts of ethical approvals. The animals may not be available at the time you need them. And so LIC said to these guys, look, <coughs> can you design us an anatomically correct cow that we can <laughs> teach people on? And they went, sure, can't be that hard. <laughs> and that's not just anatomically correct kind of external poking out bits, kind of anatomically correct passages in which Absolutely. to inseminate. Yeah, apparently Yikes. it's not quite as easy as you might think. But anyhow, they they have designed these amazing uh, mannequins. of. They've done a cow, a pig, and a dog so far. And even down to um, they simulate poo. Um, <laughs> because when you have your hand inside a cow at doing, you know, birthing or whatever it is you're doing, uh, if you don't, uh, if you spend too long, um, the trainer can push a button and simulate <laughs> the poo. Because what happens is apparently the rectum swells up because the cow is trying to eject your mm-hmm. hand from its rectum. And there is a technique that you have to learn to pull your hand out again without getting covered in poo because um, otherwise, because you've got to go on and do the next cow, you don't want to be covered in poo all day. So there is a technique. And if you don't learn it, um, yeah, you'll get the simulated poo, which apparently feels exactly like the real thing, doesn't smell like like the real thing. They, they I don't must, want to know how they worked out 
to make that the real thing. They, they must be great to be at a barbecue with. <laughs> yeah. It's, how, it's a, how's, how's work? Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fascinating business, and they're selling all around the world. They're selling to about 10 uh, countries at the moment. They have a distributor in Germany. They sell to Myanmar. They sell to the Vienna Vet School. It's um it's a it's a growing business. They so the next animals they want to look at are horses and and sheep, and they've even had interest from the Middle East uh, to make a camel because they artificially inseminate camels in a breeding program for breeding racing camels. Over yeah, there. and yeah, and and I mean that's amazing. It's come from the ethical thing of not wanting to put these animals through more than they have to. But quite a lot of animal husbandry does involve um, you know, getting in the middle and being the <laughs> the middle person. Be the change. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Yikes. Well, it's also giving the vets and the vet nurses the, the opportunity to kind of train on their own time. For example, mm. they've got this model of a dog and they can use it to learn how to do x-rays. And you get the model of the dog and you put the paw on the x-ray table in a certain angle and the machine has all these, a database of x-rays and it, through object recognition, looks at the paw wow. and goes, yes, you've got that in the right position to get this x-ray or no, you haven't, try again. And so the vets can practice uh, without having to involve real x-rays, without having to involve technicians and all real dogs, obviously. Yeah, that's probably the key thing, isn't it? Not using real animals to practice on. It's got to be a great um, yeah. change. That's so cool. And so they, um, we should probably pop some photos up of their models if we can get we hold can of those. And so they, they were one of the winners at the um, Innovation Awards. Who else, who else did well there? Well, there was a company called Holter, uh, which makes solar-powered collars, almost a bit like a cow Fitbit, that uh, lets the farmers track and move their herds. So that's that's a pretty fascinating uh, company. It's, it's even backed by the likes of uh, Rocket Lab's Peter Beck and Peter Thiel's Founders Funds mm. have got an investment there mm. too. So pretty interesting company to watch. It's really fascinating. It's definitely one that um, I'm really interested in because you read about it and what they do is these collars vibrate and make noises. So my initial questions were how loud are these noises? How you know intense are these vibrations? So I contacted the company and asked them um, some quite sort of detailed questions about how that works. And so what it does is um, the system is akin to Pavlovian um conditioning Mm. essentially Um, and so what they do is they put essentially a boundary uh, area around the cows and then as they move around depending on what the farmer wants them to do they use a series of noises or vibrations to train their behavior Um, now I'm told these noises cannot be heard audibly in the field by a farmer so it's not something that you know a human can hear it's not at that level of noise and 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 they tell me the cow ear obviously is quite big and the receiver is placed really closely inside the ear so it's not a um it's a close quiet noise as opposed to a loud noise um so it's really fascinating so one of the things that they say that's a benefit of this is that you can do away with fencing um and you can keep cows out of waterways and things a lot more efficiently and effectively just by having these cow collars on um so yeah it's a really interesting one because you know it immediately put flags up for me worrying about you know it's a bit gross to sort of imagine a cow being remotely controlled by a farmer sitting on a couch somewhere um but i guess if the other option is, you know, more intensive farming and, you know, it gives people a bit of a break from fencing and that sort of thing. It's, you know, could be a good option. Yeah. And it saves people, it saves on the labour issue. Yeah. You know, it's getting harder and harder to find people who want to get up at four o'clock in the morning and go and milk cows. Absolutely. And so do these kind of corral the cows up 
yeah. to the milking shed. Yeah, in the they morning. do. They get them to the milking shed and back. And you can also move the stock around, so it helps you with your efficiency of using pasture. Because obviously farmers spend a lot of money growing pasture, and so you want to make sure that cows are grazing efficiently, eating all the grass that's in the section that's available, and they're moving them on so the grass can regenerate. So it's down to the level where they can. Um, there might be a couple of cows that are in heat or lame or not feeling well, and they can actually split those cows off from the herd remotely and have them wander off to like a quarantine paddock effectively. Um, so one of the other things that is interesting about it is it does help with them identifying wellness, lameness, illness, and when they're in heat. So it helps to um, make that artificial insemination process more effective, which again does have some animal welfare concerns to it. You know, some people are worried about the fact that we do continually inseminate inseminate cows so we can have our milk. Um, so, you know, there are some things that I think city folk uh, might find a little... It, sound, it sounds ugh. like quite a gross swap, isn't it? It's, it is, but, you know, farming is a bit yeah. mucky and a bit dirty yeah. and a bit gross and it is about animals having babies and making them. That's something New Zealand has to think about in terms of marketing, Absolutely. actually, our products, because we think everyone wants to know about clean, green New Zealand. Well, actually, a lot of people in Asia do not want to know about mud and mm. <laughs> that sort of thing. So, mm. you know, we think that's the way you market it. It's all for the cows out, out in the paddock in the winter sort of thing, but not everyone sees it that way. Mm. Yeah, and this is such a cool space as well. Uh, to see this investment and this R&D going on. I mean, obviously it has big impacts for New Zealand if there's a uh, an interesting way to cut down labour costs and increase the efficiency of, um, of, of herds. Uh, but that can it be is. exported anywhere in the world. That's Absolutely. right. Yeah, it's definitely global. And I mean, to have raised $8 million privately, I mean, that's huge. That's a huge amount of money for them. And they have spent a lot of time, you know, it's, it's on farms now. They have been piloting it for a while. So they say in the last year or so, they've really refined their Calgarhythm. <laughs> as they call it. Um, so, yeah, they've got some legit technology here. They've got some IP. They've got this collar that they developed, which they were originally printing just on 3D printers. So very much a technology story and really yeah. exciting to see something happening in the tech space that could be, you know, could, could go anywhere. And, yeah, and, and, and this has been traditionally a wildly underinvested in sector for R&D, hasn't it? I mean, farming hasn't changed a lot in a long time. That, that is correct. There is quite an alarming statistic, actually, that – uh, something like 70% of New Zealand's exports by value come from the primary sector, and yet only 5% of agri-businesses invested in R&D mm. in 2016. Um, that's a statistics New Zealand figure. That's very yeah. low. That is much lower than a lot of other industries. And the other challenge for New Zealand agri-tech is it's no good developing things that are good for New Zealand's pastoral systems <laughs> and don't have much application elsewhere, and that is a, a lot of the technology we're developing is could be put in that category. Mm. Is, is an exception, obviously. Mm. So that's the thing. You have to think globally. You have to think, where else can we sell this tech? Who else yeah. can use it? And then they really missed a trick not to call it move or something, <laughs> didn't they? <laughs> well, I actually think it's really interesting how they have branded it because they've got the Tesla, um, the sort of Tesla-esque font happening. So it is definitely being marketed as a technology solution oh. as opposed to move yeah, or yeah. something like ca- that. Calgorithm, calgorithm. Yeah, calgorithm. Well, from, from self-moving cows to self-driving cars and planes. How is it? Like, um, it's an interesting thing that New Zealand has become kind of like a global testing leader for mm. this new technology of self-driving uh, cars, um, which actually look a little bit like planes. Um, t- tell me, why, why is this the case? 
They are planes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I wrote a whole article. Is it a, is it a car? Is it a flying? It's a, yeah, it's a plane. It's cool. um, <laughs> but yeah, there's some pretty serious people in New Zealand, you know, who are looking at this. We've got the Kitty Hawk Corporation um, down south in Canterbury who are um, testing a self-piloted electric flying contraption, mm. a.k.a plane um, called Cora. Now, this is quite an exciting one. You know, they've got some real heavy hitters behind this company. Um, They say there's a lot of things that are really attractive about New Zealand, Canterbury in particular, obviously wide open spaces and not a lot of air traffic as opposed to um, Auckland. The really cool thing about the Cora um, flying, self-flying vehicle is it it doesn't need runway to take off. So it's like a Harriet jump jet. Mm. So it can take off in a lot smaller space. So I think in terms of the ones that are out there, this one interests me a lot because it doesn't need a lot of room to operate. It can land on the top of buildings, land anywhere essentially, and then take off from there as well, which I think is really exciting. And is it drawing from that Harriet kind of technology that was enormously uh, an enormously expensive white elephant. Yeah, it was a bit of a fail. Well, these guys, I I don't think it is um, the same the same technology, um, but yeah, it's it's pretty fascinating. So there's a couple of companies that are involved in it: Zephyrworks and and the Kitty Hawk Corporation. But I mean, they've got the man who was behind Google Glass and who used to run the um, Google self driving car project. So these are people who you know know what they're doing. And now we have Uber Air looking mm. at us. Or is um, it just the Uber for bullshit? I'm not really sure. <laughs> oh, well, you know, it, it is considered to be a bit of a long shot that they might, but they are looking for a third uh, trial and Auckland is in the mix. And they're apparently meeting government officials to, to talk about, you know, what they would need to do in terms of building their infrastructure. They'd need to build sky ports in the mm. city, apparently. Uh, but and, the and thing like is... nets? Like, I'm quite on board with... It. Elon Musk's idea that maybe flying cars aren't the best idea because if someone's muffler falls off, <laughs> you're in all kinds of trouble. And if there's any kind of crash, everyone's in trouble. Where That was one of his kind of rationales for going underground. underground. Yeah. I think the thing is, drones are going to become ever-present mm. in our communities in one form or another, whether we like it or not, for deliveries, mm. for you know all sorts of things. And New Zealand is being considered a bit of a hotbed for uh, testing of the, the UAV technology. Mm. For, for a number of reasons. In the US, for example, the um, the Federal Aviation Administration, which is their authority, is pr- pretty backward apparently in enabling the testing of this sort of thing. And so these com- that's why Kitty Hawk has come mm. to a place like New Zealand. Yeah. And so they're, they're looking at alternative places to test. And apparently our CAA here is sort of quite user-friendly in that regard. They've set up these new rules for what they call beyond line of sight flights, which is what is enabling this kind of testing. And the, the drone entrepreneurs that I've spoken to say that, you know, if you go to them and go, look, we've got this crazy piece of kit we want to try, they will work with you to figure out how you can do it. And we've seen things like the, the medical drones Aotearoa up in Northland. They're, they're aiming to begin trialling the delivery of medical supplies to yeah. remote areas in the Hokianga. They've got permission for this new restricted airspace called Incredible Skies, which is exactly that. They can, they can do these beyond line of sight flights. And we've got a pretty cool little drone industry of our own. You know, we've got Dotrell, which is doing the the noise reduction uh, and um, recording technology. We've got Altus uh, down in uh, Napier, which has sold drones to CNN for testing of news gathering purposes. We've got um, Aeronavics in Raglan, which is doing aerial uh, robots. 
So this is all kind of happening and there's a lot of drone companies overseas that are apparently looking at us going, Mm. right, you know, maybe we need to get down here. And and the government's onto it and and has tried to enable it. Uh, But, you know, maybe we could be marketing this a bit more. Mm. Because the thing is, we're not the only ones. Singapore's pushing really hard Mm. uh, in this space. The Middle East as well. Uh, France, Switzerland, the Netherlands apparently have all kind of um, tried to make things easier and more flexible for this kind of technology. Yeah. I mean, it's so cool. There are kind of two sides of the solution to solve for. There's the tech and then there's the regulation. And it's mm. really cool that we are helping with the regulation. And I think, you know, I was talking to um, Shavir uh, from um, Goat Technologies about um, about uh, Goat Ventures about this. And he was saying that um, part of the reason is that we are um, uh, we don't have an excess of regulations. And so uh, where there aren't regulations, the government is really um, helpful in kind of working together with people. Well, I think we're a city of four and a half million people. Mm. It's a bit like I remember um, talking to Winyard uh, before their demise, the um, crime-fighting software company that was, and they were saying that the New Zealand police force is actually a big uh, police force compared to what they have in America because they're all city-based. And so it's a similar kind of thing. We've got one national authority that can make a decision for a whole country. And so that makes us a bit more Mm. nimble. Mm. And, yeah, the future of so much delivery does seem to be, you know, it's gone from science fiction to uh, being built so quickly. And um, that idea of there being kind of... uh, flight lines for drones mm. that would then have drop-off points in neighbourhoods that you could then head to or big yeah. big buildings and offices having uh, set kind of drop-off boxes for um, drone delivery and the like. And it starts to make sense. It's not just, you know, um, drones flying everywhere in the sky. It's, you know, maybe yeah. lines above the trains. Yeah, or, that's or right. Lo- that's how it will have to be. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, indeed. I think the other thing that um, has really attracted all these um, companies down here is we have quite strong IP laws, intellectual property laws as well. And so whatever they do develop and come up with here, it's a lot easier for them to hopefully lock that technology and that IP down here. So it appears that we seem to have got the sort of recipe right to bring these companies here, which is really exciting. Cool. And from um, one wave breaking with drones to another around the plastic bag, which has been, you know, it's gone from being all plastics, you know, a concern mm. to being public enemy number one in a very short uh, amount of time. And it's fascinating, isn't it? How quickly it has moved. It's like a switch just flicked. Last yeah. year? Do you think? Yeah. That? Yeah. Or even, yeah, this yeah. year. Everyone went from kind of like ignoring the problem to then yeah. um, we, we're seeing big companies like um, the warehouse and uh, mm. countdown and um, yeah yeah like like the, the, these big companies make uh, commitments to move to be mm. compostable or, or plastic bag uh, free um, yeah what 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 do you guys make of that I think that it is interesting that everyone's focused on single-use plastic bags mm. because I think that that is almost a bit of a red herring yeah. while they're bad and I've been using my reusable bags for ages now. <laughs> it, the thing is, there's an awful lot of um, abuse of packaging that goes on in the supply chain. And all the supermarket companies and food processors are now scrambling to try and find alternatives mm. to these extremely environmentally unfriendly methods in their supply chain. Because, as you say, a switch has flicked. They, mm. They're very cost conscious. You know, We know that supermarket chains will screw you down to the last dime. 
and they're still like that. But the the balance is tipped. They now know that there is a group of people out there called conscious consumers mm-hmm. who just won't put up with that anymore. And they can see now that there's a dollar to be made by creating more environmentally friendly products. And so the the, the cost has kind of come into balance for a number of things. And and they are scrambling to get rid of things like polystyrene mm-hmm. and uh, meat uh, transportation, for example, because it's just an environmental disaster. Mm-hmm. And But the trouble is it's cheap, it's light, it mm-hmm. holds the temperature really well, preserves the product really well, so they yeah. need to find an alternative. Petrol's amazing. Yeah, like, it it's is. Just, it's a wonder thing, yeah. <laughs> really, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like the only issue with it is that it's poison. Yeah. Yes, yes, and it, yeah, yeah. it gathers in great big soups down yeah. in um, you know the bottom of Stewart Island and places like that. I mean, it is it is remarkable, this kind of move, and you know, it's definitely a good thing if it then brings more attention onto all the other things. But it's kind of this uh, this idea that you can kind of consume your way out of a consumer problem. Well, I bought myself a reusable bag, mm. and now I'm going to take it to the supermarket and fill it with plastic things. Yeah, everything wrong. in the place, everything in the supermarket is covered in plastic. You know what? I actually think we are the authors of this ourselves because consumers are so dang fussy. You know, we expect to get a product in perfect condition and if it's not in perfect condition, we're not going to buy it. So part of this has been driven by our own consumer behavior. So we need to think about, okay then, well, let's just buy a grab the packet of bananas and just take it home and eat it, you know, instead of analysing everything and looking for tiny imperfections and rejecting things, I think we sort of need to get over ourselves a bit and recognise that we have all this wonderful food and things that are being made for us and if it has a little bit of a ding in the can or something, so what? You know, I think waste is actually one of the biggest things that we really need to think about as well and we've almost forced manufacturers in a way into giving us all this packaging because we're so fussy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and they're also looking for ways, again, to save costs and there's a company based here in Auckland called Food Cap who've developed this thing called the Food Capsule. And it's a, a, a pod that can, it was originally developed to transport meat, uh, the alternative to polystyrene situation. But it, they're now looking at applications for all sorts of food products. And they actually had to develop a whole new resin, to, a whole wow. new plastic resin to make these things. They scoured the world and nothing existed. Mm. And it took them five years. They thought it would take them 18 months. But anyway, they managed it. And so now they've developed these things that uh, can be stacked. They can be rolled along. uh, They can, uh, for example, you don't need wooden pellets to move them around. Wooden pellets are a big Mm no-no in a food environment, apparently, because of the risk of bacteria and wood splinters and all that sort of thing. So if you've got a company that's uh, having to uh, put ingredients into a mix, in smaller companies, you literally had human beings heaving bags around and then throwing out these plastic bags. And so this this food capsule answers a lot of those problems. It answers uh, health and safety problems. It answers um, product efficiency problems. And, of course, it's environmentally friendly because it is reusable. You wash Mm. them out. They can last – they reckon they can last about a decade or more, these Mm. things – and uh, they are now. They say that they are now in the sweet spot because of that switch flicking that we were yeah. just talking about. That the time is right for them, and they are um, gearing up to go big in the U.S. market. Well, it, it does feel you know very much in that wave about to break kind of um, mm. kind of moment. Uh, we through my work, um, we're working with two people who have. Um, compostable plastic alternatives. So it's still they're still plastics because plastic is actually a word to describe the properties of it, but they're just not made out of P 
petrol. Yeah. And so that's that's been the problem. And so these kind of plastic alternatives that are made out of plants, they're now coming to market and able to be made. And there's still a 20 to 30% cost premium at the moment. But it's not that much. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why we're seeing it in um, in consumer-facing products where brands have something to lose, mm-hmm. are willing to kind of put that into their products. And as we get that scale up, that will then end up moving through to all the other bits. I don't know if of it's just because I live in central Auckland, but everything I buy at the moment is innocent packaging. Mm. You know, and I think innocent have really done, been really smart and you know partnering up with a lot of cafes and you know sort of um, the very trendy sort of outlets. But yeah, I mean, like innocent appears almost to be the norm now yeah, <laughs> around central yeah. Auckland, which and, is great. And and that's really cool. And the thing that we're seeing in San Francisco, um, which is right at the front of all of this, is that. You know, the idea of buying your way out of a consumer problem is is such a a nonsense because people kind of buy nice packaging and then they put it in the recycling bin and then Mm. forget about it forever. But actually everything gets downcycled and China's not accepting recycling anymore and so there's like waste building up everywhere and people aren't washing things out so it doesn't get into the system and rah-di-rah. The actual kind of like... um, the way that recycling and, and our consumer habits have to move to is this idea of the closed loop systems yeah. where, you know, the same material gets taken back to the same manufacturers and then um, recycled at the same quality level or reused more yeah. times. And that's that, and, and that's where, you know, recycling collection and councils and, and regulation comes into the mix. And just consuming less as mm. well. I think there's definitely the slow consumption movement is, is growing in popularity. It's something that we're going to be talking about a lot more on spin-off business, just about not buying things that are single use, mm. buying clothes and then wearing them. Like if you're not going to wear an item more than 30 times, I think is the sort of formula that someone has come up with. Mm. Don't buy it. Don't buy it. 30 times? 30. Really? Wow. Yeah, 30. The, yeah. The, the average fast the average, fashion, the yeah. average piece is something like um, is something like seven, and the average fast fashion something like three. Good God, yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's <laughs> terrible. <laughs> well, just go back to your earlier point, though. It is good news that New Zealand has its first um, recyclable PET plant. Did you realise yeah, this? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Down in Lower Heart, Flight Plastics and Ca- Countdown announced the other day that it's going to start using recycled PET packaging in its bakeries and delis from August. Yeah, that is actually a really exciting move. I really think that like everyone should, um, you know, it'd be great to actually travel with your recycling bin right through the end of the process and find out how little of what people conscientiously chuck in the recycling bin actually ends up coming back at the same level or even just slightly degraded and how much of it ends up in a landfill. It's absolutely mind-boggling. Yeah, I think we like to feel good about ourselves because we split our stuff up, but it's just not enough. <laughs> it's really not enough. We have to be a lot more mindful about what we're consuming. Yeah. And and I think pressuring the retailers is a great way to go. I mean, there's been a bit of backlash with Countdown about their um, saying that they were going to ban plastic bags and then announcing with great fanfare, <laughs> we don't have plastic bags in these 10 stores. And then people went there to find that they're just selling Plastic bags, thicker, thicker, <laughs> thicker bags, plastic bags for 15 cents, that which, you know, I kind of kind of see where they're coming from because, you know, it is a behavioral change and they're going to be mm. some people who are probably not across it as well as we are that this is all happening. Yeah. But I mean, it does seem like a bit of a nonsense, doesn't it, to announce it. And this is why we really need to be careful as media of pushing back and poking holes in some of these claims yeah, yeah. and not letting corporations greenwash the public. And, and we should be looking for end of life management of the resource. So just yeah. having a recyclable bag isn't enough. It's like, yeah. well, how are you recycling it? How are you making sure that that's going to end up back being used? Yeah, well, the soft plastics recycling program is heavily subsidised, you know, mm. so people feel good about shoving their plastic bags back in that thing, but that's actually costing all of us money to do anything with that, and they're actually basically maxed out 
as to how many soft plastics they can deal with now. So there's only so many bollards. Yeah. They take they take those soft plastics that everyone conscientiously puts in the bin and they melt them down and turn them into traffic bollards and, and things like that. So they're not they're not staying at the same level either. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. Yeah. Although I, I saw some interesting stuff about people using them for roading, which is quite cool. And actually twice in the last week I've heard um from people uh saying that it's all a red herring because 75% of the waste that's going to landfill at the moment is generated by the construction industry, which right. I haven't independently verified, but having heard twice in a week, that that's something that would be interesting to look at and that find is, out yeah. more about. Yeah, That would be fascinating because they have a lot of packaging, you know, as well. You know, every pallet comes double wrapped, triple wrapped. And again, it's about the product that we expect at the end. You know, we are almost driving this packaging ourselves because of our consumer demands are the end product. You pop your head in a skip and the waste is out. Oh, it's phenomenal. I saw an interesting presentation at Tech Week, actually, from an architecture student at Victoria University who's developed a reusable building kit set model, basically. Uh, He's looking for funding at the moment. And that's pretty interesting. So you can put it together in all sorts of different ways and then take it down and it can be reused again. I'd be interested to know about the economic model of that, though. Um, you know, how, how do you make money out of that? <laughs> but yeah, the, the people are thinking of all that sort of thing because you're quite right. Construction waste is a huge problem. Mm. Mm. Yeah, be great, be, be great to <laughs> get some numbers around that. Uh, and then on the podcast this month, a um, couple of great kind of um, apps that we had on with um, Dexabit with uh, the museum data. Yes, isn't. Um, Angie, amazing. Yeah. Angie Judge, she's a very impressive young lady. Um, to combine sort of, and it was interesting when you said to her, oh, do you always thought you'd do your own thing? And she just went, yep. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was into into computers. I was, uh, my mother was into art, I think. Mm-hmm. And so she had that sort of art background and um, she had to, had to pivot a few times before she came up with the right thing, but she did. And it's all, it's like so many other businesses that we're seeing now, it's all about using data to make predictions to help you in your business. And in her case, it happens to be museums and, and other, you know, art um, organisations. Uh, but yeah, I wish her well. It's a, it's a great idea. Just she, a, yeah, she was very impressive. And the uh, list of people that she's working with is, you know, in the Smithsonian, in the National mm. Gallery in the UK. I mean, uh, remarkable. Yeah. Well, data is the new gold, you know. I mean, everybody talks about it like that, and it is true. You know, data is definitely incredibly valuable. You know, so for museums to know where people are going and what they're looking at and where they stop and lurk and, you know, I mean, that's incredibly valuable information because you can see what's working and what isn't, you know, relatively quickly. Mm. And, and um, safety as well. There's all mm. kinds of, yeah, all kinds of cool things that come out of what she was doing. And the other um, data app of the month um was Bridget Hawkins of Regen, which was this remarkable product where uh, through through monitoring and sensors in the soil and uh, f- following kind of external things like the weather, their app can tell farmers how much of the effluent to spread back on the ground and how much mm. water to uh, irrigate with. And as a result, can stop things sluicing out into our waterways, which sounds like the coolest thing in the world. But mm. um, the, the uptake has only been really large in places where the council's mandating it. And wow, what a shocker. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Who would have thought? Who would have yeah. thunk? And, I, and uh, everywhere else, <laughs> progressive farmers are jumping on board, and she certainly has you know clients everywhere, but the, the uptake has, has definitely been linked to when um, there, there's a 
regulatory side of it? I think, you know, I think we'd be surprised if we talked to some farmers how recent this idea mm. of um, having to manage your farming business to reduce impact on the waterways um, has kind of uh, finally dawned on them. I did some work for Fonterra a, a while back and I remember talking to one farmer who was saying it's really only in the last 10 years that they've started using techniques like grazing from the top to the bottom of a hillside that goes into a stream so that you reduce the impact. But yeah, I thought what Bridget said about uh, this kind of being able to prove that you're sustainable going forward is going to be increasingly important for the New Zealand farming model. Mm. It's not going to be good enough for farmers to just go, look, I know my property, I know what I'm doing, trust me. They're going to have to have the metrics to back it up. And this is where products like hers comes into play because they've got the data and especially going over time. Uh, to know how to best manage that land and to prove that they've done it well. Yeah, and with those um, external facts, such as all of the waterways ruined, uh, mm. you'd think it could be something that um, was, was just mandated as a cost of doing business. Like you have to make sure that you know what's happening with, your, uh, with, with what you're washing off your farm. It's really interesting. They had a um, front page on the Waikato Times this week um, talking about farmers and dairy effluent, and it was actually quite disturbing about how many farmers are just not doing anything about it. They had about 800 or so farmers that had they said were at a high risk of pollution and had not done enough I, to manage their effluent. I did a story 10 years ago about riparian buffers and there was this massive program to incentivize it and people, farmers just weren't doing it. They're like, well, that's two metres of, of grazing land. I'm not giving that up. They're talking about um, putting, you know, aerial monitoring up in the air to try and, you know, catch some of these farmers. And the reaction from some of these farmers just blows my mind, you know, saying, you know, it's sort of spying and this sort of thing. Well, you've had years and years and years to sort this. You've refused to do it. I say more. Bring on more. More monitoring, more everything. I'm sorry. It's just not good enough to be pissing and shitting everywhere. Yeah, well, this this app, if anyone um, wants to advocate to councils to get it mandated further around the place, um, Regen, and it lets you know what's happening. So that <laughs> Regen. Was, that, that was, was Regen. Cool. <laughs> that was Regen. That was Regen. So good, 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 um, good agricultural kind of month of it out there. Um, thank you very much for joining us today. That's Maria Slade from Callaghan and Rebecca Stevenson from The Spinoff. And thank you very much uh, to Alice with for producing and thank you for having us along. You've been listening to Business is Boring presented by Simon Pound and brought to you by the spin-off and Callahan Innovation. From the spin-off podcast network that was Business is Boring brought to you by Sparklab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.